The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Recently I began a series of talks um, about integrating practice more and more into our daily lives. So we overcome this stereotype about spiritual life that it's all about the particular quote-unquote spiritual rituals like when we're praying, when we're meditating. And then the rest of the life, it basically frees us up to live the rest of our lives the way that we want. But that doesn't generally work very well. What does work is to have a sense that um, in any moment of our life, we're either supporting change or we're pretty much acting out our habit energy, which is reinforcing it. And no, some of our habit energy might be okay, but a lot of our habit energy revolves around fear and greed and denial. And that's not something we necessarily want to reinforce because those are painful mind states, painful ways to be relating, to be living. And in January, I was talking about practice, uh, the formal part of practice, like formal meditation practice, as finding a way to touch a deeper aspiration or a deeper motivation, a motivation that comes from understanding, in a moment, what am I really trying to do with this life? So generally, what that means is somehow we can access some deeper quality of compassion, like a caring that we have for our predicament as a human being. So we touch that, and this is not a one-time thing, but this is something we'd like to touch at the beginning of any particular set, or many times during the day, sort of touching that truth that I do care about this life. And in particular, I care about the fact that if I live out of greed, I really screw things up. Or if I live out my irritation, my aversion, or my denial, my distractedness, I end up making a mess of things, or at least more likely to make a mess of things. And so we have this compassion, this motivation to do something. And then that's the first part. It's just to understand that our position as a human being is fragile and it's relatively easy to be swept away into a life that leads to suffering, that leads to stress, to confusion. You know, all the different flavors of suffering that we could be swept away into. So just noticing this possibility, we get motivated. That's the first part of practice. This is also true with daily life practice, remembering this. And that sort of heightens our attention and motivates us to do something. But often what we're motivated to do is not useful. So the, the second part is understanding what is actually wholesome to do with that motivation. And from the teachings of the Buddha, from our own direct experience, we come to this basic conclusion that when we're motivated to take care of ourselves, the best place 
to direct that energy, that motivation, is to the present moment. Because I could be motivated to take care of myself, and then I could just worry about all the bad things I've been doing. Have you noticed that that's what we often do? Like, we do wake up and realize, oh my God, I, this life is fragile, or I could, you know, waste my life. But then what we do is we waste our life by worrying about the fact that we can waste our lives. Or we think about, we obsess about all the people who we think aren't wasting their lives, and how come we can't be that way? So the key here is that, the second part is that we have some kind of, uh, somehow we've stumbled upon these teachings, either intuitively, directly, in our own experience, or somebody's grabbed us by the shirt and said, hey, and there's something about the present moment that's really good to know, good to find out about. Check it out. <laughs> you got to see this movie. It's called The Present Moment. <laughs> you won't believe it. It really changes things. It's true. So then we have kind of a sense, oh, I care. That's the first part. And I know what to do with this wholesome motivation. It's like I take this energy and I use it to keep myself from being swept away by my habits into distraction, into worry, into planning, and to redirect the life, the mind, to the present moment. And then the third part of practice, formal and informal, just as a review, is when we're in the present moment to, over time, with practice, develop skill to increase the continuity. Because otherwise we're just having a moment of being present and then we're lost again, then we get distracted again. So how can we land in the present moment, turn toward the present moment, and then not be caught by the different distractions or impulses that happen? And then the fourth part of practice is, over time again, to develop insight about what view, what way of being really supports those first three things, connecting with our basic motivation to take care of ourselves, realizing the importance, the relevance of the present moment for change, for all good things, and developing the skill not to be distracted when we're present, to maintain some continuity. And that basic view, you know, just it, it has something to do with letting go. Like that comment I made at the end of the sit tonight. Uh, putting down, what did I say? Putting down the burden of self-importance. The ancient burden of self-importance or something like that. So that's, that's basically, we put that down and we realize this basic care or compassion and we're already in the present moment. As soon as we let down that self-importance, we're in the present moment. And generally what takes us out of the present moment is getting caught up in self-importance. Self-importance also includes feeling bad about ourselves. That's a, just another uh, uh, arrogant view, thinking we're bad. is just as arrogant as thinking we're good. According to the Buddha, even thinking we're the same is an arrogant point of view. You know, we're all the same. So the Buddha, in one of his talks, said, you know, all three of these are deluded views, thinking we're better, thinking we're worse, and thinking we're the same. We don't need that thought. We don't need to put ourselves 
in the context of everybody else, like rank ourselves somehow. That's just extra. It's stressful. It takes us out of the present moment and into delusion, into distraction. Because as soon as we think we're about the same as everybody else, then we're wondering, well, how could I get a little bit better? How can I maintain the status? I, I don't want to slip into being less than average. So that's the basic framework. And then we're trying to take this now into our daily lives. So it's not just in our sitting practice, but in our daily lives, trying to re recall to maintain the sense of I care. I really care about this life. I really want what's best. What is best? Oh, I want some ease. I want to be free of this stress, this worry, this fear. What do I do about it? Okay, remembering the present moment. Right? Whether we're sitting or we're going about our day, we're here. Because it's right here where the stress is manifesting or the absence of stress is manifesting. This is this is the relevant point right here, this moment. This is the point where either suffering or not suffering is going to come to be. So how can I maintain a sense of presence? A presence to whether suffering is arising or non-suffering, happiness, ease is arising. How can I maintain that? So the first instruction I gave two weeks ago is just to it's so, so simple, just to remember the possibility of slowing down. Or if that word doesn't work for you, just softening. So as you go, and you can just take some different situations in your life, like your job, or a person that you regularly interact with. And then you can just begin to train. So when I interact with this person, I'm remembering the possibility of slowing down just a little bit, or softening just a little bit like uh, taking off some scales. The, we read a story in uh, the Dharma Book Circle. It's a group that meets on Tuesday mornings. And we're reading Jack Hornfield's book, which is quite good, um, After the Laundry, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. How the Heart Grows Wise on the Spiritual Path, or something like that as a subtitle. And in that book, he tells, uh, he tells a story from Sweden, and one of those ancient stories about a, a young maiden uh, whose parents have married her off to a dragon. So she's obviously a little bit frightened by the prospect of having to be married to a dragon and seeks out somebody who's wise. And there's this grandmother who's had nine kids and has 29 grandkids, and she's the local wise person. So she goes off and talks to this older woman about what she should do. And this older woman says, well, there's really nothing you can do. You're, you're, you're destined to marry this dragon, but I can give you some advice about that. And she said, on your wedding night, make sure you wear 10 dresses, one over the other. And, uh, <clears throat> and when the dragon approaches you, uh, make this deal with him that you're, you're happily, I mean, you're happily willing to disrobe um, one dress at a time if he's also willing to shed his armor. And so she takes this advice, and of course, there they are on the wedding night. And just as the old woman suggested, she says that to the dragon. And then one dress at a time and one layer of scales at a time. And of course, as these stories often go, he turns out to be 
just a cute little guy, frightened, you know, who had been caught in some evil spell. And we don't hear about what happens that night. But the idea, actually, it's true. It's not just that we relate to the dragon or relate to, to the maiden, but actually we want to relate to all the different characters and, and just get a sense of, of like peeling back the layers and how useful this is. Like if we're the maiden, just being willing to be naked, you know, just exposed, undefended. And, uh, and the same with the dragon, you know, and how wonderful it is and how scary it is and how painful. In the story, you know, the first layer of scales was pretty easy for the dragon. He's used to taking that set off. But, you know, the second, the third, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth layer, really painful for us to let go of. And we might notice this when we try to slow down or soften in different situations, that there's, there can be a lot of resistance to that. But do it anyway, just as an exploration, not, not as a should, but just to see, well, what is it, what does it hurt? What's really, what am I really afraid of? Softening in this situation. Slowing down a little bit. And this can be even like when we're walking from our car to the office or wherever we're going. It's like it's amazing how much resistance there will be to slowing down just a little bit. And remember, this slowing down doesn't need to be dramatic. It can just, basically all we're asking ourselves to do is break the habit. So if the habit is to be defended, we soften. If the habit is to rush, we slow down a little bit. And it can dramatically change our lives. And remember, it changes our lives not because suddenly we're holy, because we're soft and slow. It changes our lives because when we soften a little bit or slow down a little bit, we see something about the mind that we wouldn't otherwise see. When we're rushing or hard or defended, then it never occurs to us to notice this pattern. But as soon as we have this instruction to slow down a little or to soften a little, what do we notice? We notice the strong habit, impulse, to harden and to speed up, right? And so that's what we want to see. Like, what is that about? Because it, it will immediately, initially at least, seem personal, like, I need to speed up. I need to be hard. But if we can maintain a curiosity, a, a presence or mindfulness, well, see, it's just a habit. It isn't self. It isn't me who needs to speed up, wants to speed up, me who needs to be defended. It's just a habit. And as a habit, it can be let go of. But we'll never discover that, we'll never have that insight unless we take on this training of slowing down, softening. So even though that was just the first week or the second week when I talked about that, this is something we can practice for the rest of our lives. I mean, for me, this is such a useful. I tend to be somebody who rushes and is a bit kind of a, a controlling type. So this is a really good instruction for those of you who are like me in this way, where your personality tends to be fast, quick, rushing, demanding, controlling. Then we don't want to soften and we don't want to slow down a little bit. It feels like it's a little bit like a death. 
meaning the rusher, the controller, dies because we're, we're becoming a little bit softer and we're letting the world rush without trying to outdo it, outpace it. We're just going to have a different pace. And then last week I talked about another strategy for working, cultivating a sense of mindfulness, presence in daily life is to maintain this sense of uh, this possibility of freedom. And this is a little bit related to uh, what I've been talking about over the last month and a half about you know, remembering our basic motivation, like I care about this life. Now, if we didn't think that life could be anything but suffering, we wouldn't be motivated to care about ourselves. We'd, we'd feel like destined to suffer, so why bother? But somehow, most of us, most of the time, have a sense that it's possible to be at least more free, more at ease than we currently are. And so we want to keep our mind open because one of the most pervasive beliefs we have is, I'm a suffering being. Right? That is a very pervasive belief. I'm bad, I'm a suffering being, life's bad, or life is good, but I can't count on it staying this way. So then we're tight for that reason. So basically, all of us, most of the time, I think it's fair to say, have some kind of view or belief system that's operating in that present moment that justifies or rationalizes tightness in the heart or constriction in the heart, right? Does that sound fair to say? So what I talked about last week is to challenge that basic habit. Whatever the belief system that we have that rationalizes being tight, we want to keep at least a thread alive that suggests maybe not so. That maybe, maybe uh, it's possible to be at ease now. Maybe it's really possible to take all those gowns off, you know, or take all those scales off, to be undefended. Maybe life as it is, as messy as it is now, for all of us in all of the different ways that it's messy and as beautiful as it is, maybe this life, this sort of funky mind state that we might have right now, this kind of achy body or sleepy body or restless body that we might have now, that the appropriate way of relating to this is, you know, unconditional release and acceptance. That was one of the phrases I used a lot last week from the Buddha's discourse in the Heartwood Sutta, which is him describing the fruit of practice as the unconditional, unshakable release of the heart. So I'm not saying we should fake that, you know, or pretend that that's true, but who are we to say that it, it's not possible, that it's not available? Have we actually looked? Have we... Have we done our homework, basically. Like, can this heart be released? Actually, do we have some sort of definitive proof that it's appropriate to be tight right now? This is the appropriate response to life. I know that. You know, Tightness works. Fear works. Greed works. 
denial works, which is the unexamined assumption that we've all been making most of the time in our lives. And so that's why, uh, both in terms of formal spiritual practice, but also daily life practice, there's so many different rituals that people have found useful, basically to help them remember the possibility that maybe it, maybe the heart doesn't need to be constricted. Like even, you know, people who do a little meal prayer at the beginning of their meal, or a little meal reflection or meditation, so instead of just sort of gobbling down food, like a hungry beast, which we do most of the time, or at least I do often enough, you know, every once in a while I remember another possibility, which is to, to realize before the meal, before I start to eat, a sense of ease and freedom so that uh, I'm not acting out my hungry ghost energy, that I can just, you know, my eating, the eating process can be about something else than sort of a hungry beast feeding its belly. Or, you know, another place you can build in a ritual is just being, practice being really at ease when you meet people or when you say goodbye, because it tends to be a tight time. So like when you meet somebody, like a friend or a relative, whoever you live with, you come home at the end of the day and you see that person. However, whatever your ritual might be, whether you give the person a hug or whether you just say hi, but to like um, to use the greetings and the goodbyes as an expression of this unconditional, unshakable release of the heart. Like to be really at ease in that in those two seconds or that that little gesture. Not trying to get anything out of it. And if the person is familiar with the teachings, you can kind of make it a plan together that, you know, when we connect at the end of the day or say goodbye in the morning, you know, that we we practice showing up. And remember, this unconditional release doesn't mean that there's not fear, or does it mean that their mind's not in a funky state? It just means that there's no resistance to how it is. So it's not like, again, it's not a pretending that things are hunky-dory, but just not offering up any resistance. That's the unconditional release of the heart. Another place to practice this that I didn't get a chance to mention last week, this this kind of release. Or remember I mentioned that poem by Havis, Tripping Over Joy? I, I have it here because I didn't read it to last week's group, the Wednesday group. I read it on Sunday, but not to you guys who were here last week. So this is this Persian poet, um, and he wrote this poem that's translated as Tripping Over Joy. And it goes like this. What's the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and singing, I surrender, whereas, my dear, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. And that's, and that's, that's that this unconditional 
unshakable release. You know, kind of giving up this self-importance, this idea that we have a hundred thousand serious moves left, and we better do them right. You know, and that's sort of our justification for constriction. But so another way to remember this is like whenever we are out in nature, and this can be very simple, like just stepping outside and seeing the sky. And whenever, whenever there's nature, and nature could even be watching kids play in the playground, and you can, you can just get a sense whether you're observing the weather or a flock of birds or a bunch of kids playing or even one kid skateboarding down the street, you can, if, you're, if uh, you're really there in the present moment, you'll see this, this possibility of tripping over joy like it can't be explained. You can even do it right now, like just being in this room. When the mind is fixated, then it turns this experience into I'm at common ground and Mark's giving a talk. And it, it's like it's defined, it's fixed, and it's heavy. But if we just soften the gaze, soften the mind, we realize it's really a, an, a, a, this vast mystery right now. It's like, who are these people? And what is a person anyway? You know, or what is this mind that knows this? And you know how that is. I'm sure you've had this experience. Like, we think we know this room, but when we're actually here, it's like, seeing it for the first time, oh, you mean the room's like this? You know, it's like everything's a little bit mysterious. Or if you say a word like three or four times in a row, all of a sudden it doesn't make sense anymore. <laughs> it only makes sense when we don't pay attention to it. But when we really pay attention to the, 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 it's like all we have to do is start paying attention to any situation and the mystery just becomes, sort of leaks through. And then that can kind of convey, remind us of this possibility of like the heart can release. The heart can only get constricted if we think we know what we're doing, like we have a thousand serious moves and so I've got to make sure I do the next move right. But when we realize it's just nature happening here, our whole life is also nature happening. Our whole personality is also nature. All the things we think we're doing and not doing and doing right and careful to do, it's also nature. So that really is conducive of letting go. And so we can learn this, we can rediscover this in traffic. You know, you might think you're going to get an accident, but you might find out you drive much better when you become part of nature than when you're a guy trying to get <laughs> to another place, you know, and then all of a sudden everybody's in your way. But when you're just part of nature, it's funny how we can move through crowds, how we know how to socially relate. But if we try to figure it out, it gets very heavy and difficult. What should I say? Should I smile? Should I be stern? You know, Because if I smile, maybe he'll think I'm interested in him or she'll think I'm interested in her. You know, It's like all these things are impossible to figure out, and yet we try to do it, and we just get tight. So this is a way to practice in daily life, is to remember the possibility of freedom and just start doing it in places that are relatively safe. And just explore what that's like. Washing, to, washing the dishes, you know, with this, like let it be nature. Instead of I have to wash my dishes, 
we can just like let it be a force of nature. The seeing the dishes, you know, and the memory of cockroaches and <laughs> and that the dishes will be just harder to wash tomorrow, you know, that all just naturally arises in the mind. You don't need to make those thoughts come. They just come when you see those dirty dishes. And maybe what that means to your partner or to who you live with. That all comes up. And then right behind it is the motivation, I better do. That's not even personal either. That's just nature. It's like a, a breeze in nature just blows in. I better do the dishes or else. right? And even that fear, that's also it's a little storm in nature, you know. I'll get, she'll divorce me if I don't do the dishes, or he'll divorce me. And then we do the dishes, you know, and then that's, then the whole activity can be just the expression of freedom instead of some big burden. And tonight I want to add to these, you know, techniques we can play with, explore in our life. So slowing down, softening, that's one. Playing with the idea of full and complete freedom. Just somehow generating, remembering that possibility, breaking this view that it's not possible, and just considering the possibility and see how that affects the activity, whatever that might be. And then tonight I thought we could begin uh, to add a third specific training, which is the creative use of restraint. Because restraint, you know, seems so heavy. And this is really about sila, which I know uh, some of you know is ethical conduct or moral conduct, living harmoniously. And uh, nobody, I think, likes to be told what to do. So, but what we can realize just by paying attention to our life is that we, as much as we don't think this is true, we like rules. We actually thrive with rules. And we suffer when there are no rules. And I have many examples. I bet, I bet some of you have examples, too. It's like I, uh, in, I think it was 89, I, I moved to New York City because there was this teacher I wanted to practice with and live with. His name is Swami Shokananda. He's a great, great guy, great teacher. And uh, he was, at the time, he's not anymore, running this yoga meditation center in New York City in the West Village. And so I moved there and uh, began to work there and teach there. And um, um, I've got to get myself back here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about sila, ethical conduct. And uh, because it was uh, ashram, and you know, there were monastics living there, um, then, so the whole, the, the residents, the people who lived there, had to follow all these rules. And it was, it was quite strict. You know, we, three practice periods a day where there was chanting and breathing practice, pranayama practice and meditation practice and chanting practice and yoga practice, hatha yoga practice, you know, uh, three times a day. It was quite a bit of time. And then uh, celibacy and not using alcohol. Uh, while you were living there, and I forget what else, but there are other things too. And you can you can see like, oh boy, that's that's really intense. And, and in a way, it is really intense. But there's a lot of freedom in that. And then I remember after being there for a year, I had uh, I took a vacation, 
And one of the community members who lived out in the suburbs up in Westchester County uh, gave me their house to use. They were on vacation themselves. So I took my vacation by going there. And I thought, okay, I'll have a peaceful time. I'll be able to do a lot of meditation practice. And But I was outside of the container, you know. And it's just like, it was so painful not to have the container, not to have the community, not to have the rules that I had. It was really painful. Just uh, kind of uh, do things that weren't helpful, weren't, weren't good for me. And uh, so we all know this about our, our minds. It's like if we, if we have no rules, then we tend to act out our sort of the habits that have the most momentum, which aren't always the best habits. Now, ultimately, we may not have any more of those habits, and then rules won't be important. But as long as we have momentum, as long as habits that are painful have momentum, it's nice to have rules and to really appreciate the value of these rules. Because it gives this, these habits something to bump up against. And then we get to see them. And what do we get to see about them? That they're not self, that it's just a habit. So, you know, if we have, uh, you know, the habit to, to mess around, you know, to sleep around a lot, and, you know, just that, that basic lust to want to connect with somebody in a sexual way. And, and it comes up, well, it can feel so personal. But if we're not acting it out, we see it's just this habit. And it's like really there. It feels really alive and very real. And then 20 minutes later or whatever, it's not there. Without having gratified it, it goes away. That's such a profound insight to see that these things that are so intensely real, seem so intensely real, are only intensely real for a while, and then they go away on their own. And that really helps to undermine the feeling that it's true, it's me, and I won't be happy until I gratify this, or until I get that, whatever that might be. So much of spiritual life is about letting go. And this is true, too, with sila, is that our basic habit energy is saying that happiness comes from acquisition, acquiring pleasant experiences, pleasant objects, getting rid of unpleasant things. And, of course, this is really complicated because where is the end to desire? Has anybody found the end to desire? Has seeking pleasant experience made a dent in our desire to have pleasant experiences? No. Seeking pleasant experience does not reduce the habit of wanting pleasant experiences. Or getting rid of unpleasant experience doesn't reduce the desire to get rid of unpleasant experiences. In fact, the more sensitive we become, part of what happens in spiritual life is we just become more sensitive you know, we notice things more. And we'll just notice all the things we want and all the things that bother us. This is one of the side effects of meditators that they don't like, is we become very sensitive. And we start noticing all the things that we were too oblivious to notice that they bothered us. But now we notice they bother us. It's like, 
why are you moving all the time? You know, or why do you talk that way? You know, all these things are, <laughs> it's like I'm sure you sometimes in your, with your close friends or partners, you know, it's like how they eat or how they, you know, how they use the bathroom, you know, the kind of, they're just sort of intimate habits. And it's like, oh, you know. But for many years we could be completely oblivious to these things. But now we start, and then the worst is we start to feel that way about ourselves. We start noticing all of our sort of habits, and we don't like them, you know. And uh, it can be quite irritating. So what we need to do is we, we use that sensitivity to kind of uh, uh, sort of have the one effect that's useful, which is to undermine the taking it personally. We have to, the only way out of all these habits is to uh, illuminate them. We need that sensitivity because the sensitivity leads to the insight. So when we use sila practice, ethical conduct practice, where we creatively, voluntarily take on restraint, you know, like the, the classic restraint for sila is the practice of non-harming, whether it's in our sexual behavior, in our words, uh, in terms of our behavior in the world, not harming other beings, other living beings. So if we, if we take that on and then specifically find ways, find rules that we voluntarily, creatively work with, we're going to show up, we're going to illuminate all of our habit energy that bump up against that rule. And then when it bumps up against that rule, it like gives us the opportunity to see that that habit energy is just habit energy. It's not self which means we have a, another option. When we're just kind of distracted and that habit energy manifests, we, we unconsciously assume this is me who wants this, who wants to do this, and we just do it. There's no reflection. But when we're mindful, that habit energy still arises because it has momentum. So that the mindfulness doesn't keep it from arising. But when it arises, we see that it's arising. We see it's just this habit energy. And then there's all of a sudden a choice that otherwise wouldn't exist. And the choice is either we can act it out like we would do if we weren't paying attention, or we can just feel what it's like to have this impulse. That's an option we wouldn't otherwise have. Oh, wanting to hit is like this. Wanting to strike back with my words is like this. It's just this feeling. It's just this emotion. It's just this experience as it is and it may be pleasant it may probably in this case unpleasant but I can be with this because it's just like this it's just this unpleasant experience it's just this force saying you know say this to this guy but we don't have to act it out we can just know it's there and lo and behold <clears throat> with some degree of mindfulness it falls away after a while and it's not there anymore without having had to say anything or do anything that was unskillful. This is the real value of creative restraint. Undertaking the training to refrain, to restrain ourselves from harming others. 
or under you can make it more specific you know undertaking the training to refrain from gossip or undertaking the training to refrain from killing bugs spiders cockroaches just not because killing is bad we can't live without killing even if we're vegetarians there's just no way around it we are all participating in this world of living and dying and that's just how it is so it's not about becoming some perfect being that never harms another creature although that's a fine ideal so I'm not saying that it we should wantonly kill we undertake the training primarily though not to not just to prevent harm and killing but because of insight because it shows up the habit of wanting of justifying harming and almost always those habits are diluted they're based on an assumption that isn't backed up by experience like the assumption that i need this there's a somebody who needs to act this out and when we look we realize it's just habit we don't have to act it out so i'll continue next week talking about um, sila the first uh, way to begin is to reflect or to consciously make a vow around non-harming whether you want to do it in a really general way or you want to just take a specific area like flirting which might cause some harm or gossiping you know something around words or some action like how you drive like what would non-harming look like and so and if the more specific you make it the more likely you're going to notice yourself bumping up against it if you have a general rule like non-harming you can always it's so easy to say well that really wasn't harming you know i was just taking care of myself so you have to have a specific rule you know like i'm not gonna um i'm not gonna try to cut in on the freeway you know i'm going to wait until the person gives me space or i'm not going to you know intentionally hate people who cut me off i'm just going to understand that that's how it is you know and they're probably having a bad day and or this is just their habit it could be otherwise given their conditioning right so you just take a specific behavior that you're going to practice creatively practice refraining from in order to see the force of the habit to do it okay and we'll talk more about it next week and we can talk about it now there's about 15 minutes left if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share with the group and any of the ways that you've been training slowing down softening or remembering the possibility of freedom or now this third way which is the creative use of restraint or refraining what comes to mind
you know, so it isn't like the personal thing is just if you're new, you're her victim until the next new person. And so I had had this interaction with this person, and then I moved to another floor, which is where I'm at, and now this person is up on this floor, and she's trying to make new friends among a group where I'm a member. And some of my friends there said, to one of my friends there said, oh, do you know so-and-so? And I was like, I wanted to say, yeah, she's really mean there, you know, careful about her, but I decided not to. And uh, actually I ran into this person later on in the day, and she was actually quite nice, like she's trying to be a different person. So I felt really good about not undermining her efforts. That isn't something that I Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think the the key point that you you bring out, Bonnie, is that this creative use of restraint or refraining is in the service of happiness. It's not about being quote unquote good. It's about being at ease in the world. So this is the this is what we're looking for in this kind of exploration you know creatively using restraint we're, we're seeing how it can be in the service of ease of freedom the freedom from being all tight all bound up in life mm-hmm. Be a little louder, so. Oh, okay. And and so in these conversations, um, you know, people are trying to catch up. So what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, how is things going? And so I found myself replaying kind of the same scenarios in my life because I had talked to a number of these people for a long time. And they're planning this gathering, and so, but it felt I was unclear if I was engaging in idle chatter. It felt like I was pushing play on the tape recorder. Yeah. And I wasn't trying to, but these were people who really wanted to know what was going on in my life. Because I felt really conflicted about that. And, you know, some of the stuff is really funny and some stuff that other family members had done that, you know, it is gossip. But at the same time, these are people in our lives that, you know, significant events are occurring. So we do want to know what's going on. We want to be supportive. But it's confusing. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to know. And so, you know, it's, it's great. And I, I guess I need help in understanding when it's um, wholesome, when it, I mean, it's easy to see when it's unwholesome, you know. But I guess it's when it's gray like that, it's not so easy to see. Yeah, it isn't necessarily uh, in the moment, but this is one of the reasons that it's so nice to have a formal practice that coincides with our daily life practice, because then later, you know, the next morning, for example, and we're sitting, and the mind's relatively quiet, hopefully, when we're sitting, and then all the if there's anything unfinished, it's likely to percolate up in our sitting practice, like, ooh, I said that, you know? And this is the great thing about quieting the mind down. If we have done something that's off, by definition, it's alive in us. It's left a trace. So if there's no trace, really, truly no trace, then it was an unskillful. By definition, something unskillful has left a trace, and that trace is painful, and we can feel it. Now, we have you know pretty effective systems of denial, but if we're practicing, then that sort of uh, 
more likely can expose what's been left over, what's the unfinished business. Not just from yesterday, but ancient unfinished business. We don't even know what it's from, but it's there. You know, all that sadness is coming up, all that grief, all that rage. And it may be generic, meaning that it's not even from a particular event, you know, from this lifetime or from ten lifetimes ago. But it could be a conglomeration of unfinished business and as it's percolating up, it's like this now. And we're feeling it in our sit. And we know if we're feeling it, we know it's real. So we don't actually need to know the story or stories because if it's there, it's real. And then we just know this is unfinished business. But as unfinished business coming up, it's now business, right? So the fact that it's unfinished just means that this is arising not, by, not because of what I'm doing right now. Right? That's all that unfinished business means. But what it, it is something that's happening right now, and how I relate to it is the current business. And if I'm relating to it skillfully, like an example of being skillful with unfinished business is just allowing it to be, it will unwind and there won't be any trace. But if I relate to this pain unskillfully, then I create a trace. And there's more unfinished business. Like if I repress it, Oh, I don't want to feel that and distract myself from it. Then, not only is that unfinished business still unfinished, but we've created another set of unfinished business, which is that denial or that repression. So that's one way, is if you find a time daily or re relatively often during the week to have a quiet mind, you'll get a sense of whether your interactions have been clean or not. Because if it's still alive in you, then it wasn't clean. And sometimes it's alive in us because of the attachment to a really good interaction. And we kind of keep wanting to go back to it. So that's called attachment. So we have to sort of, oh yeah, that wasn't so skillful. It was still a good interaction, but the attachment to it was unnecessary. That was extra, and that constricted the heart. This is a great thing about quieting the mind. And then, of course, the more uh, deep your samadhi is, the, the quietness, the concentration, then the more sensitive you'll be to unfinished business. And as I was saying earlier tonight, this is a two-edged sword. We don't always want to be sensitive to all of our unfinished business because there can be a lot of it, just a lot of what we're doing in the day. But you know what? We start paying attention in our daily life when we're sensitive because we don't want all that unfinished like even on retreat, like I've been on some really long retreats and the mind gets really sensitive. Like some of my retreats have been three months and even longer. So when you're practicing week after week like that, things really quiet down. And then even very little things, it's like like if even something relatively harmless like uh, letting my mind uh, spin for a couple minutes about renovating the building or something like that when I'm on retreat then just the attachment to like wanting to do the renovation right creates a force of greed in the mind that's really unpleasant. And then it has some momentum. And then there I am, you know, walking and sitting and basically uh, just awareness of what has been set in motion and is rattling around. And it takes a long time for it to unwind. So even in two minutes of fantasizing about this or that, you know, getting into a lust fantasy 
or just getting into a rage fantasy, you know, like wanting revenge, wanting to get even with somebody who hurts you, even for a few minutes, can set an emotional force uh, in motion that when we're sitting means we have to be with a lot of pain until it's unwound, you know, which means we have to sort of be with it, feel it, allow it to be, not react to it, unwind. And so we, we really develop what's called in Buddhism, hiri otapa, wholesome uh, fear, wholesome regret, like, don't want to do that again. I want to be careful. Honey, please be careful. Because <laughs> it's so easy to do something that sets suffering in motion. So we learn to be full of care. Now, it sounds oppressive, but there's one thing more oppressive than this kind of sensitivity and concern, which is to live without concern and without sensitivity. Because we're setting all this stuff in motion, and we don't even understand how it's all happening. And we feel yucky, so what do we do? We run from it, which just makes us feel more yucky and doesn't resolve the yucky feeling we were feeling. And that's how we all get bound up. So there is this very narrow part of a spiritual life where we have a lot of sensitivity. It feels overwhelming to be sensitive. But we know enough not to repress, not to act it out, but just to be with it. Because to act it out is just adding more. And uh, eventually insight develops where there's a certain degree of kind of uh, creeping spaciousness I like that. I know it's a little bit provocative, but it's like we're willing. It's not a problem that there's all this unfinished business or that there's all this sensitivity. There's just this is what wisdom, the insight that comes, the wisdom that comes up in practice over time. It we don't mind being a being that's purifying, that's sort of walking this narrow path. But at first, before the insight's deep enough, it feels really oppressive. And we, we really want to bolt, but at some point we realize that doesn't help. And so we just stick with it. But it still feels oppressive. But we don't can't see anything that's better than it. And then, and then things loosen up if we stick with it long enough. We can come back to this. And, and sila, ethical conduct, really brings this part of practice out. And so if this discussion is sort of pushing these buttons for you, that's probably appropriate. And uh, just reflect on its value in your own life. Don't take it because someone told you you should do it. But do it in a creative way and see if it, if it really is useful for you. So we'll check back in next Sunday. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. And we can remember this deep, wholesome force of compassion that we really do in fact care about this life this heart and it's a pretty easy step to recognize that other people are also vulnerable to suffering just like we are and that we can care about them too that it's not easy being a human being it's easy to get caught in ways that lead to suffering. So we undertake this path of mindfulness, of awareness, 
as a way of protecting ourselves, taking care of ourselves, and taking care of others. To be a force for happiness and peace and ease in the world. May we all be free from suffering and free from the roots, the causes of suffering. Thanks everyone for coming.